I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today, we talk with Claudia Beechen. She's an artist, a millennial, and has spent the last two years following hospice patients in order to learn about life. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Tell me a little bit about how you got involved with the hospice movement, or why hospice, or why hospice patients, um, which is intriguing to me. Sure. No, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I, haven't, I hadn't come from having had a particular death in my family or, or close group of friends. I have lost close friends, but that wasn't, that wasn't where I was coming from. I think for me, I've always been fixated on this question of how we should live. And it seemed to make perfect sense. If I wanted to understand that, I should ask the people who had a very limited amount of time left. I felt that maybe all of that would come into focus for them. And maybe they would be able to look back and maybe see slightly more clearly than, than when we're in it. Maybe they would have, maybe there would be themes of regrets. Maybe there would be themes of, of things that gave people meaning. And that's really what I was interested in. And that's what I was looking for. What did you find it? In part, yes, in, in part I did. And in part I didn't. It was a, it was a mixed, it was a mixed bag. It brought up a lot of a lot of different things for me. Well, first of all, you don't claim yourself as an artist. I read somewhere that you don't have any professional training as an artist. No. All the paintings, all the drawings are all natural, talented ability. It's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, well, I... I always thought I would go and study art when I was like 16, 17. And then I made the decision right before everyone was sending in their applications to university to go and do take the academic route because I felt that if I ever went back to art, then I could bring all of that education into my art and hopefully make it make myself a better artist by virtue of, of having those influences. So what got you to the United States and San Francisco? And what was the years in between you trying to figure out um, you wanted to contact hospice patients? How did it all evolve? So, well, there's no linear... There was no linear progression in this. I don't think there's sort of a particularly linear progression in my life in general. But right before coming to the States, I, about a couple of years before, fell in love with an American from California. That's dangerous. It is dangerous. It was dangerous. <laughs> it changed my whole life. Um, so we actually got married. And um, so partly partly so I could, we could be together in California. I mean, we, we met here in England. We, we studied together at Oxford University. And so that's how I ended up in California. But prior to that, I was studying at Oxford. I then spent a year working in documentary film, doing research and, and related things. And then, um, and then from there, I did a master's in anthropology at the University of London. And then I moved over to the States. And then we start, my partner and I, Bryce, started working together on a company that he was founding at the time, which is completely unrelated to anything that where I was really coming from. It was, they were building the first facility in America to be able to recover precious metals from end-of-life electronics. So I was really interested in the ethical component of what the company was doing. And then a couple of years into that, I realized that it just it wasn't fulfilling me. I spent all of my time on a computer. I'm so driven by interaction with people and connecting to people. All of my background before that had been in mental health and a lot of 
volunteering in mental health sectors and in, like in East Africa I worked over there for a while um, and so I, I was like you know what I'm gonna pick up I'm gonna pick up a pencil I need to do something outside of work that's going to be more fulfilling to me so I started drawing the portraits of my family because I was missing them I was so far away from home it had been like three years at this point started drawing them and I realized oh my god this is something I love and it's something I can do and from then on it just it just it just rolled and sort of snowballed from there. I was like, okay, I'm going to go out onto the streets. I'm going to ask people if I can draw their portrait. I'm going to just start interviewing them and always sit and speak with them and find out about who they were before drawing them. And then it got to a point where after doing that for, I think it was like two years and I had got the work in galleries and I had got it in big shows and things were going really well. But I was like, you know what? It's not enough substance. I want to do like one big project that I can really throw myself into. And really the driving force behind going into documentary film right after I graduated was that I wanted to make a piece of art that made people think about their own existence and made people question the day-to-day -day monotony of their life and kind of shook them out of that and made us think okay but what are, what are we actually here for so it kind of came around full circle like five or six years later in this project the project we're talking about is the the thoughts and passing and so you started off just calling hospices I read this and None of them said no. Yeah, pretty much. None of them said no. So a couple of couple of first didn't get back to me, but once they realized that everyone else was saying yes, then um, even those ones opened their doors as well. How did it all begin? Tell me the first time you were knocking on the door when it came to the first encounter with someone on a limited timeline. Interestingly, I actually ended up not using the first set of interviews. And that's the only person I didn't end up using was the very first interaction. So I was recommended somebody who was at Laguna Honda Hospital in, in San Francisco. And I remember driving over and I was like, I was terrified. I was, I was like terrified. I mean, like my hands were sweating. I was like driving, I could like feel myself getting really nervous and thinking about like, what am I going to, and I felt it was a really strange feeling so I was like if I feel like this and I'm deciding to go and confront these issues how would how would all my sort of friends and family who aren't you know trying to kind of push these things away how would they feel in this situation and I and, and I listen back to the audio from those first interviews and I kind of cringe on how on how nervous I think I, I sounded when I was particularly asking the questions about about dying and like what does that feel like and how are you feeling like those questions I was I was really nervous what are some of the questions that you would ask and tell me how many hospice patients did you you in dump interviewing over and it was a two-year process correct yes across two years I interviewed well I ended up so I have these final nine pieces that you have seen I ended up meeting with a few more people beyond that but for whatever reason they weren't a right fit and I can sort of go into more detail about why that was I really tried not to turn anyone away I didn't want it to be I didn't want it to be selective in that way, but it became apparent that I was getting a lot of similar kinds of people in terms of age and race and gender, and I didn't want to end up with a project that was very homogenous. So that was one of the reasons. Um, in terms of the questions, I started off at the very beginning. I had a not a script, but I certainly had a set of questions that I wanted to ask. Um, a lot of them were things like, you know, what, what are your biggest regrets? What does it feel like to be dying? What are you scared of? Do you believe in life after death? Um, what has been the happiest moments in your life? What would you, what advice would you give to your younger self? Those kinds of things. And then it became very apparent very quickly that actually I didn't want any kind of formal structure 
structure. Just having a very natural conversation was really how I was going to be able to build trust with people and how ultimately it was going to be a successful project. One of the most amazing things that I have found in your drawings is that you allow each, especially the one hanging in Washington, um, who was the patient that you referenced? Jenny Miller. You actually told her story through like writing it within the drawing on her clothes and her voice. I can actually see and maybe even mentally smell the cigarette, the, sh- the smoke from that interview. Uh, what an amazing person, because I do think you're asking them just to share a little bit about who they are. And what was what stood out is that individuals don't change just because they're dying. Yes. And that's what I loved about your drawing. So tell me, how did you think about incorporating their story within the drawing and how did you come up with that concept? So that was always going to be part of the project right from the get-go and for me I actually I wrote my master's dissertation on how we move through personal transformation through narrative and through metaphor and changing narrative and metaphor and the more I delved into that topic while I was while I was studying my master's the more I realized that that really our entire selves are made up of stories like we are narrative and not only do we create those narratives, but in turn, those narratives create us. It's this cyclical kind of process that occurs. And so I wanted to include people's stories woven into the into their clothing, really as a as a metaphor for for that idea of what it of what self is. Well, I think it was brilliant. Your drawings and the people that I've experienced through, you know, many years in hospice care, it is all about the story. Tell me what lessons have you learned throughout this whole process? Well, there's a couple of really big themes that came up for me over and over again. In fact, one of them that you you mentioned and you hit right the nail on, on the head where you said, you know, people don't change because they're dying. And I went into this project convinced that they did <laughs> and, and I was convinced you know maybe na- very naively I'm I was at the time in my late 20s and I thought you know what I think people are going to have some sort of revolution or, or some sort of groundbreaking realization that maybe we can't have us normal people who are still fully living maybe we can't quite have that same realization and actually what I found was that Largely, there isn't some grand revelation. Largely, we continue to be the selves that we've always been. We have the same insecurities that we've always had. We see the world through the same lens that we've always seen it seen it through. And I think what it made me realize is that there isn't really this linear progression towards this ideal state of enlightenment or whatever it, it might be, at least for not for 99.999% of people. And at first that was quite shocking and dark to me, I think. I think it sort of like made me give up a little bit on sort of hope that maybe there is something that we're all aiming towards. And instead, here I was meeting all these people and their life went along and went along, went along and then stopped. And that, that, was, that was hard at first, but actually I turned, I turned that into something much more positive in my mind because I think it made me realize, you know what, Claudia, you're not going to reach some ideal state. You're not on a linear progression. You are going up and down on this wave and at best your freedom can be found in being able to accept that. In this rare end of life period, what I have found is they don't have time for BS. They just are so authentic. And I believe when people are authentic, their whole vulnerable side is so 
real. Tell me a little bit about how throughout the interviews you did with some of these hospice patients, did you see some of these vulnerabilities shine even brighter or impact you? Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you would use that line about not having time for the BS because that's exactly what one of my subjects, Harlan Titsworth, he said. Um, And that was exactly what it was. I mean, he was like, I don't have time. I don't have time for this. I don't have time to be unemotional. Like I want to connect with people and live more deeply. And every time I wake up and I see the sun rising again, he's like, I know I've lived another day and I'm grateful for that. And he's just, you know, I think, I think having your future stripped away from you, it does well, potentially, I mean, it can do many, many things, but I think at least for some of the people that I worked with, what it did is it squeezed their experience more and more and more into the present moment. And I think you get a lot of the things that you're talking about out of that. Like the deeper you go into now, the more you're like, you know what, it doesn't matter that X has happened. Like just come back to where we are now. And that I did see that time and time again. So for me, it is all about that connection and the hospice patients that I've come to know and even meet at their end of life how do, have you dealt with some of their deaths? Um, most of them have died already. And, and, you know, it was strange. The first time it happened actually was Harlan. And I had kept saying to myself, oh, I'm going to go back for one more interview. I'm going to go back for one more interview. But it was, it was a long way. I went all over the Bay Area for this project. It was like an hour and a quarter drive or something. I was like, I'm going to go back for one more. And suddenly I had a call that he had died. And it just, I mean, that first one, it just... It just shook me. I was like, how? This doesn't make any sense. But, and yet, this is exactly what I knew was going to happen. On the other hand, I just I couldn't sort of equate it in my mind. So most of them who died, you know, suddenly you get a call that they've died and just suddenly there's an absence. I don't sort of have the, you know, I'm not going to their funerals. I'm not, I'm not having that sort of experience, except for one man called Daniel, who I was with him the day before he died. And I just happened to be passing by at his hospice. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go in and just see how, how he's doing. And up until that point, he'd kept saying, it's not a big deal. I'm fine about it. I really don't think it's going to be a big deal. And then I went to go and see him and he just entirely like broke down. And we just like held each other for like 20 minutes. And he just sobbed and sobbed. And I don't think he even was really clearly speaking properly but the next day he died and I think he knew and I went to go and see him after he died as well and I so that was by far the closest I got I think with with that experience and it was I don't don't even know I mean you've had I'm sure you've had the experience so many times like I don't know what you do with absence yeah it 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 is sort of weird to to be in and experience something with someone knowing that they're dying and then hear about their death. I do feel that you, you meet them at such a raw period in their lives that it leaves an imprint that you really can't, no words can really come to some explanation or definition to allow other people who have not experienced the same thing to understand. Uh, I've met so many people at their end of life that I can recall and laugh and and part of me, especially in hospice care, my experience with hospice care, you sort of celebrate their life because you know they're not suffering anymore, that they're free. And whatever we all think about the after, um, you know that they are free to, to be who they were at one time. Um, so tell me, are you surprised to get a little bit of attention. I saw your article in Washington Post. And I mean, are you a little surprised that you're getting people 
calling you saying, Hey, let's, let's talk about your experience. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's, I mean, it's been a wonderful, it's been, there's been a wonderful reaction. And I think because it is, because it is the, I mean, it's the universal experience. And I think also the project, you know, really came at a point when there's so much momentum gathering around this topic that I think a lot of the recognition I got for my project is because of that momentum that's been building up. And I think even a couple of years ago, it was happening and sort of when the project was finished, it's right as there's all of these other, you know, books coming out and like the, a very big movement around this this topic. But no, I'm very I'm I'm very lucky because ultimately the whole project was about getting people to listen. That's that's all I wanted is to get more and more people to listen. So who is the individual that their painting is hanging in the Smithsonian right now? That's Jenny Miller. Is she aware of this or is she still alive? She is still alive. She's very aware of it. She's very excited. Um, every time I, I I mean I spent a lot of time with her before I came to England and she came to a show recently that we did on the project um, in San Francisco back in April and um, she just she loves telling everyone about it she actually she told me that being part of this project validated her life I tell you listening to her story that you captured so eloquently uh, because it's you know like I said you could hear the raspiness and it's her story is not the most glamorous story you'll ever hear and so it is sort of awesome that in as she is facing her end of life, she's sort of an artist that's getting a little bit of acclaim herself. And she sold a lot. She'd never sold a painting and she sold, I think, almost everything she has now. The biggest thing that I learned in terms of how to live like that big question was what I saw over and over and over again was that people want there was a theme in the things that people wanted to talk about and the things that had given people meaning and what all of those things had in common whether it was having children or making art or contributing to their church or their community or you know spending time in nature like all of these things were similar in the sense that they were all about creation and participation and connection. And what I found was that nobody wanted to talk about the things they had consumed, the status they had achieved, the wealth they had accumulated, and nobody had nobody cared about the stuff that they had, you know, brought into themselves. It was all about the things that they had put outside of themselves. And I think for me that was one of the biggest takeaways that's really, really stayed with me. Um, it's just that at, at its heart, I think to live a meaningful life is to live a creative life in whatever way that means for you. Wow. And there's also another um, thing. I think I read it either on your website that it is about connection. And I believe that some things that, I mean, the more you give is really the more sort of your imprint is left as you leave you know, when you find your own end of life. But I think those are valuable lessons that I'm not sure that anybody else could teach those except those who are facing end of life. It does it make you live your life a little bit more fuller. It does. You know, I think the biggest thing that it's done for me is I'm more committed to my life. I'm more deeply committed to my life. And, and, and what it's done is actually made me feel so much more free. I think I was the kind of person and I still am, don't get me wrong. I didn't have some, <laughs> and sort of, you know, you, you have these mini changes and these re-realizations and these reawakenings all the time. I feel like it's really hard to get them to stick and to stay with you permanently. Um, but I am very much the kind of person that's always like, oh, well, what could I be doing instead? Or what could I, oh, I wish I could have bought that dress instead. Or I, maybe I'd been on this holiday and whatever it was, you know, nothing has ever 
never quite good enough. I was always thinking about the next, really the next best thing, which is also something that a number of the subjects talked about, how that was really indicative of much of their life, was always looking for the next best thing and how that's not what they would do anymore. And, and that really, I think, is something that has happened to me. I've just become much more deeply connected to my life as it is already. That's amazing. Well, I do hope that I get to see your work. I think what you're doing is you're giving death and dying a different, more positive viewpoint. And what it took over the last two years from you to create something so beautiful, it is that dash in between that birth and death. That's what it's about. I really appreciate your time. And it's really nice to see you, meet you. And I wish you well with this whole exhibit. I just think it's awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. See you, Claudia. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.